HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a butter egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st hrn. Opening soon is sponsored by diageobaracademy.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're talking organization. Not mise en place or keeping your knives in a row, but labor organizing. If any restaurant worker is listening to this and is like, yes, I want something different, but I don't know where to start. First step they just need to do is to find one of us and get plugged in. As independent contractors, they can't directly tell people, you know, when or, or where to work, but by using sort of gamified nudges to push people, that is sort of how they um, move the workforce around. Tune in to Meet in 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. It's common knowledge that wine and alcohol sales have much better margins than food. Building a great bar program not only delights guests, but can really drive profitability. But how does a post-lockdown world turn the bar program on its head? Many metropolitan cities still haven't opened up bar seating, which means challenges to the added revenue restaurateurs are accustomed to as diners wait for their tables. Amongst other challenges, like dwindling large groups and events, how can the cocktail remain fun and exciting while still driving revenue? Our guest today is Adam Fournier. Adam is the world-class, sponsored by Diageo, bartender of the year for 2021. Congrats, Adam. This Thank means you. that he will... Yeah, it's cool. I'm a, I can't wait to hear about the competition. Um, Adam is going to go on to represent the U.S. and compete in the international world-class in July. And he has over 15 years of hospitality experience... Most recently was the bar manager at the award-winning Nomad LA, and now is the bar director of Fellow LA, which we just learned is reopening soon, so we'll get into that. So tell us about being bartender of the year. Uh, yeah, uh, it's kind of crazy. I am the USBG Presents World Class Sponsored by Diageo Bartender of the Year for 2021. <laughs> it's quite a mouthful. That is uh, quite the title. It really is. It really just means that I spent the last five years of my life putting my nose to the grindstone and opening myself up to being critiqued and to learning and being educated by some of the best of the best in this industry in uh, a way to grow and expand in this competition. And it's an, it, it sounds trite sometimes, but it's an honor. It, it, it 
I really feel like I'm representing not myself, but my community um, and uh, the people that I've grown with and, and competed with over the past five years. Cool. Very exciting. And so next step is you're, you're going to Spain in July. Is that right? Yeah. The, so uh, for anyone unfamiliar with the competition, uh, World Class is the largest bartender competition in the world. And I do say bartender competition. It's not about one cocktail. It is about testing all aspects of you as a bartender, a hospitality professional, including profitability, menus, how you consult. Uh, and it is run in nearly 60 countries. Uh, I won the nationals for here in the United States in July. The global finals will be happening where uh, we will all be, uh, again, digitally competing this year uh, due to the world. Uh, they are rightfully uh, designed to maintain social distance and a lot of really, really amazing procedures and uh, efforts are being made to uh, create this competition on a digital space. We're literally living the future. Uh, but we're representing the U.S. Uh, in virtually in Madrid uh, this July. How does that work? You, do you get a space and you sort of do it on Zoom? How, and how many people are competing in July? Uh, I don't have the exact number of the number of, uh, of countries. It's, it's the number I always hear is just around 60, uh, because sometimes some countries can compete sometimes they can't. Uh, and what they're doing is they're actually, uh, you can actually, if you want to see how it worked in the United States, the platform's still live. Um, uh, what we're going to be doing, it's going to be a mix of pre-recorded segments and live streaming segments with the judges. They're actually going to have avatar bartenders on site with the judges who are going Whoa. to be executing the drinks to our exact specifications while we're on the screen presenting, doing the same thing. So that way the judges still get to taste everything that we're doing. Uh, we uh, uh, just yeah. got most of the information uh, or the first round of information this past week. Uh, so there's numerous phone calls in the next <laughs> couple of weeks to learn how this is fully going to work. This is a massive, massive uh, project that is I can't even imagine the logistical nightmares that some of these tech people are going to have to deal with on this. And I, I very much appreciate their efforts. How does, tell us like, how do they, how do they judge profitability other and, and, and some of the costing things that go into it other than the obvious that you've made a less expensive drink that can sell for more money? I mean, talk to us about that. Yeah, absolutely. So part of the profitability aspect that goes along with, uh, this competition is uh, because it's not just a competition. It's also an educational platform and community. Uh, the world-class studios uh, and Diageo Bar Academy are integral parts of this uh, competition. To actually enter the competition, you have to have completed at least one of the world-class studios, either in person or online, and those live on Diageo Bar Academy. And it, built into that platform are a myriad of educational opportunities that are ongoing, one of the big ones being profitability and also how to reopen safely and profitably in the COVID era. Uh, so the primary tool that they always kind of pull out for the competition is when you get to your menu challenge, uh, or in this case, one of our challenges was to create a batched cocktail that a uh, guest could buy from their favorite bar or location and then 
make a video walking them through how to make that batch into their cocktail at home, much like many of us are doing over Zoom during all the shutdown, uh, and costing that out. Like, what are the costs of these goods? So there's a profitability calculator that's on the website that I highly recommend anyone who's never costed a cocktail before, go check it out. Uh, it breaks down the ounce cost of not just your base spirit, but of your juices, of your modifiers, um, and helps you compare that against what it would cost to make it with, say, a cheaper ingredient or a more expensive ingredient. So you can find that sweet spot of offering value for cost. Uh, there's also a great uh, loss calculator where you can actually see like how much uh, uh, spillage or a cost of one drink being lost a day uh, over the course of a year, how much that can cost you. Uh, so it's really about taking that what I said at the beginning, that's not just a cocktail competition, it's testing you as a hospitality professional to make you think about how would this actually work in a real life setting, not just a competition setting. How would this drink fit into this menu to be able to function in an actual re real world setting? Tell us about, um, that, that's, that's, that makes a lot of sense and that sounds really important and more than just... Um, making a, a fiery red splashy cocktail or whatnot. But, um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about how, you know, how you feel like the bar, you know, world in reality has changed, you know, specifically, I'm sure you can speak to LA and, um, and what you expect to see, you know, from your restaurant or a fellow once you guys, um, get back up and running, how, how will bar guests have changed and, 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 uh, the um, economics of being behind the bar? Oh, that is a multifaceted question that does not have an easy answer. I think that the hospitality industry is always evolving and growing with guests and consumers. Um, I, I think it's a truism for so many bars and restaurants that uh, the neighborhood and your guests in a certain way dictate what you offer and what your space eventually becomes. It is a back and forth. I've been a part of many, many openings over the course of my career. Uh, and no matter how solid of a plan of a belief that you think that you have at the beginning, uh, once it starts getting stress tested, once you start developing regulars, once you start developing that, that heartbeat of the venue that evolves um, with your guests and, and becomes a, a wonderful feedback loop. And I think that that's going to be an interesting thing to watch as things start to reopen. I think that people are very, very eager for a uh, transportative experience. I have a background in theater, so I always kind of think of it as um, uh, a, a, a suspension of disbelief as this is a, a performance in a certain way. Uh, we're all kind of ignoring the fact that behind that wall, there's the kitchen and there's honestly a lot of chaos that's going back there to bring you out whatever food you're getting, whatever drink you're getting. Um, and I, I like to think of it as you're doing your rehearsal which is all of your prep, your batching, your R&D, all that stuff that goes on. And then you're keeping certain things in the wings, which is your server stations, your, your meats, you're keeping everything clean. So that way, when a guest sits down at your bar or at a table, they don't have to think about any of that. They can just enjoy a drink, enjoy food, enjoy a night out that's not in their apartment or their house. I think that building that welcoming experience uh, and that... Uh, charitable assumption of how do we elevate 
whatever we're doing, whether that's elevating your local spot to just make sure that it still feels like their living room outside their living room or trying to give them a more elevated fine dining experience because let's face it i'm tired of cooking for myself and i don't even cook that much for myself my girlfriend does a lot of it because she's a much better cook um and and i think that one of the things that most is going to change is the economics of scale i think we're seeing a lot of this in conversations about uh wage disparity or tipped wages uh, and also the value of what food actually costs, what drinks actually cost. Um, I, I do think that the American model of bars and restaurants has for a very long time relied on the idea of um, alcohol sales kind of helping to make up for a certain level of profitability, but that requires sure. a certain level of consumption, a certain amount of foot traffic. And you're definitely not seeing that right now. And I don't think we're going to see it that. It requires for- like people standing four deep at the bar, which probably isn't going to happen anytime very soon. (laughs) Yeah, probably not. Probably not. Um, So how do you put more drinks on the table? How do you keep that check average up? Yeah, I think that part of that becomes the experience of uh, uh, pairings. I think it becomes the experience of offering a premium product in a lot of ways to make sure that people feel like they're getting the bang for their buck. Uh, I also think that part of that is going to be um, uh, uh, being mindful of people who might not want to consume alcohol tonight, who might not uh, be uh, in a mood to consume alcohol. So we're, uh, at The Fellow and uh, a lot of places I do now is we pay just as much attention to our non-alcoholic offerings uh, or our lower ABV offerings as we do to uh, our full cocktails because we want to make sure that that experience for every single guest, no matter what they choose that experience to be for that night, is uh, equally remembered, is equally as thoughtful. And I think that that is an aspect that is going to grow uh, as we go along uh, in the post-pandemic world where uh, that is something that will help keep people around where it's, hey, you know, I, I might not want to have another Manhattan, but I would love to have a, a non-alcoholic beverage as we wind out the night here. Um, and that's something that can help with those sales and help with that those uh, margins, but also just help a guest feel at ease because I think the biggest thing um, that was going to enable us to come back is building back regulars, building back that hospitality vibe where if they're coming back out and we show them a thoughtfulness and, and hospitality that makes them feel welcome and warm. They're going to think about us the next time they're choosing to go someplace. And the more times they come through the door, the more times we have an opportunity to keep that those lights on and keep being there the next time they want to come back. I agree. I'm, I'm about three and a half years into um, an NA cocktail person <laughs> when we go out. Um, and and I, I agree. I think it's like when I go somewhere that doesn't have them, it, it looks to me personally as a huge missed opportunity because, you know, you, it used to be that the NA option was a Coca-Cola or a Sprite, which probably cost a dollar or two, but now, you know, I'd happily pay 10 to 15 bucks for a wealth hot out and a cocktail because I want to have the same, you know, experience of something. He misses having pink and... drinks on the table. Of them. Let's, let's be I real. Do, I think I order less pink drinks now that <laughs> they do. don't have booze in them for some reason. <laughs> I don't do. know why it is. It's but, true. I can attest um, to that. But yeah, I, I think it's a huge opportunity for, for restaurants to to probably generate a little more revenue. Now, I have to guess that most of the time the NA drink has got an even better 
um, cost average on it. What do you? I, I think that there is a thoughtfulness that can go into it and that any non-alcoholic drink needs to be costed the same way you would cost a appetizer or a, cock- a full uh, hard cocktail as well, um, which again, I would recommend uh, the profitability calculators uh, uh, on the bar, Diageo Bar Academy to give you a sense of what that looks like, that tool's already built in there. And I think that for a lot of bar professionals, the idea of costing your juices sometimes, or even your syrups sometimes uh, passes by. And I do think that having those non-alcoholic options, yeah, it's again, it's that idea of just mindfulness uh, of making sure that that experience is the same. Like just because you're choosing to not drink alcohol tonight doesn't mean you don't want to have something that you can't make for yourself at home. Right. Um, You can pop a Coke at home. You can pop a a Sprite or, or uh, just some basic soda water. So having that idea of uh, how do we make this uh, an experience no matter what what the guest is looking for uh, and be able to fill as many of those spots as we can is amazing. And especially even just low ABV cocktails. I'm here in Los Angeles. It's the, it's the city of angels, but also the city of cars. (laughs) And in, uh, uh, in the pandemic, you know, the ride shares, it's not, not everyone's feeling that. So more people are potentially going to be uh, driving to a venue. So having even the idea of, great, I would like some beverage, but I uh, don't want a full martini, having low ABV options, more sherry bases, more aperitif bases uh, that are still fully thought out are a great way to capture uh, that vibe and that spirit while encouraging our guests to drink responsibly and be safe. Uh, And again, there's great tools and education for all this uh, that live on Bar Academy and, and world-class studios. They even have an ABV calculator uh, down there and uh, sessions on how to craft low ABV cocktails because you have to think about them differently. The dilution hits differently. There, there's less of a shake. There's less of a stir. You're not trying to blunt as much of a, a alcoholic edge. You're trying to unlock flavors. Uh, dilution is, is ultimately doing that. It's meant to unlock a flavor uh, to make uh, uh, something more balanced and bring things together. Uh, it's not a bad word, but it does uh, hit differently depending on what point you're at or what ingredients you're using. So being able to be thoughtful about that and having a tool up your back pocket to say, great, I, I did the research on this. I know where I'm at and I know that I can make you a full flavor cocktail that hits no harder than a you know typical lager beer. There you go. One beer, one serving, one easy, responsible night out. There you go. No, that, that also makes a ton of sense. So tell us, so you mentioned your about to be opening a new spot. I think the yeah. date was the 20th, 21st? Uh, 21st, but as as anyone who's done opening knows, there is always the potential that something something fudges on that. But yeah, right now we're aiming for full opening to the public uh, the 21st. Exciting stuff. So you're probably currently in the midst of designing a menu. So talk, walk us through a little bit about how you design a menu and what any trips or tips you have for making sure it's you know as profitable as it can be. Absolutely. So my thought process for designing a menu uh, always starts with uh, the venue uh, and the concept of what's happening there. So uh, fellow uh, was in a position uh, to take advantage of the uh, unfortunate necessity of the second shutdown here in uh, Los Angeles and California. Uh, they just brought on a new chef who I have actually worked with before uh, at the Nomad. Um, and uh, they said, okay, great. We're going to take this time. We're going to 
uh, remodel, let the kitchen get its feet under under themselves. Uh, and then I was the last member of the team to join. I actually uh, just joined last week. So uh, it's full steam ahead with the menu. So I'm, I'm very fortunate that I have a a uh, kitchen has a very strong point of view and an identity uh, and a mostly completed menu to look at. So because it's a restaurant venue, I always think about it in terms of pairing with food. How are we uh, uh, building that experience so that they are synergistic? Uh, it's not operating in a vacuum. So uh, then I started looking at the balance for the, uh, the menu. Uh, so for me, uh, kind of the sweet spot for the number of cocktails for a, a restaurant is about eight um, uh, give or take, uh, because, because people do get menu burnout and you don't want to over prep again. Like that's a big part of the profitability, uh, is looking at your prep and what you have on hand and what your waste is going to be. So once I have that kind of sense in mind, it's trying to hit the, um, the big key areas. What's the stirred drink? What's the uh, uh, shaken margarita style-esque drink? What's the highball drink? What's my low ABV drink? What's What can I do along those lines to uh, offer, again, that experience for everyone? Um, then on top of that, like I said, we're also very much focusing on uh, our non-alcoholic options. So we're also going to have four non-alcoholic options. So what we now have is we have a full menu, very well-rounded of 12 full flavored, thoughtful drinks by the time we open that are going to give people a, a massive opportunity to, to direct their evening. Once that's in place, it becomes a question of how do I reuse uh, and make this sustainable? Um, that for me is the biggest thing for a bar profitability. It was actually a, a big part of uh, my world-class challenges as well. Our final challenge was uh, a speed round where we had to put up five drinks in five minutes uh, which is incredibly stressful if you've never done it. Uh, but we're also <laughs> given a, uh, a spirit and a, um, occasion. So for example, mine was Johnny Walker black label and outdoor music festival, not two things you necessarily think of going together all the time. So I really sat down with my friends who are big festival goers. And we talked through the ethos of these festivals and the thing that came up constantly with sustainability and community. So I built this uh, presentation, this idea around uh, sustainability, which also plays into a lot of what you do for a regular menu, which is how many ingredients can I re reuse across these cocktails to build full flavor while bringing as few bottles to this location as possible? Uh, can I use biodegradable containers? Can I use plant-based straws? Um, all these little things that help build in that. And for the fellow, one of the big things that I'm going to be doing is a lot of uh, reclaiming juices. Uh, I, I know that uh, not everyone can uh, uh, afford to clarify juices or something like that, but if you can, it's a great way to increase your profitability by taking a product that you've already paid for and extending its shelf life. Uh, the example I always like to use is grapefruit juice. Grapefruit juice for me is the hardest thing to par out for a bar, uh, even if it's been used in a cocktail, because you might go through three quarts of it one day because someone just wants a lot of greyhounds, or you might juice it and not use it for the next three days. And by that time, it's no longer viable for you. If you can clarify it and find a way to repurpose it, um, uh, you have extended that shelf life and you're uh, reducing your footprint, increasing your sustainability and ultimately increasing your profitability. Um, but yeah, I guess that's the the biggest like breakdown for it. And then what I do is I, I cost recycle every single juice. cocktail. Yeah. Re <gasps> yeah. Recycle juices. I, I love this idea of recycle yeah. juice. Yeah. Makes you feel better about 
Yeah. Uh, there's, and also I'd recommend um, uh, draft cocktails if you have the possibility of batching. Um, uh, there are a lot of great educational uh, modules by some of the best of the best in the world uh, through the world-class studios to walk you through and teach you how to do draft cocktails, how to do batching, all these things that will ultimately reduce waste uh, because uh, that's your biggest, especially right now without volume to to cover it, uh, your biggest potential uh, um, profitability sink right there is every little thing you have to throw away every drink that gets spilled every ounce that gets spilled of anything uh is ultimately going to affect your bottom line so if you can keg a cocktail if you can batch it uh you are eliminating a lot of the need for individual measurements and the you're eliminating the compound mistakes that build up over time and you're also increasing service speed ultimately where you're getting drinks out there faster so you're able to create a more complex beverage uh, while still getting it out to a guest uh, as quickly as possible so they're not waiting around like the old days of the 15-minute craft cocktail going, man, I I ate all of my chips. Where's my drink? It's like, no, here's your drink. Here's your food. Here's your appetizer. Great. We're, we're all set. Uh, and if you're keeping in we mind that, that kind of- recently, actually. That's not <laughs> just the old days. We both said the same thing. It's Again, it's a missed opportunity. It's like yeah. you want to the drink was yeah. delicious, but it was in like a frozen grapefruit that had been carved out. <laughs> it took forever to get. It was delicious and gorgeous and it was beautiful on Instagram. But on that note, I was going to ask you, because I, I feel like pre-pandemic, you know, in the last five, 10 years, there's there was definitely a focus on, you know, like a refined classic cocktail. But I feel like mm-hmm. the menus that we've seen since are sort of elaborate and, and almost like drinks, back baby. to the 80s yeah. where it was like you do this over the top and it's blue and it has a shiny umbrella in it and all these things do you feel like people because we've been away so long and we all want this like crazy experience that cocktails are changing in that way or i don't think that that ever left cocktails yeah. okay. I, I think i think that like i said earlier i think that part of what we have is to acknowledge that we we are kind of a show and that you do drink with your eyes. I think that it got subdued for a while uh, with people really trying to hone in on classics and techniques and education, which I think is is very important. I, I very much try to think of myself as an educator. And I think that the more our staff is educated, the more they take advantage of tools, the more they know the more you're able to break the rules to make a memorable experience, but in a safe way, in a profitable way, in a tasty way. Because at the end of the day, flavor is king. If a drink doesn't taste good, doesn't matter how elaborate the garnish is or how big of a show you put into it. Uh, it, It's just not good. Um, And I do think that there is a sense right now of returning to a little bit of that showmanship and building into complexity because there are more tools available to us. Uh, there are those abilities to batch drinks or uh, or uh, put dr- drinks on draft or all these other kinds of tools that we've developed over the past you know, 15, 20 years of the cocktail revolution. And also, quite honestly, people's palates have evolved. People change over time. The industry constantly changes and goes through trends. And imagine, if you will, a world where someone at TGI Fridays in 1998 ordered a Negroni and expected it to be good. 
I think that there's a large, <laughs> there's a large, there's nothing against TGI Fridays or the drinks they make there. One of my best friends uh, was, uh, work, grew up in uh, working at TGI Fridays. He was the Midwest Flair bartending champion of 1994. Uh, <laughs> I was a bartender uh, at Hands back in uh, yeah, like 19... 2000. So it's, I've made a few nothing. blue and pink cocktails myself. <laughs> yeah. And my I way still, around a, a bottle of blue carousel. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still make blue and pink drinks if I can't. Yeah, it's, <laughs> but, but if you think about what that palette says, and I do think that there is a certain expectation now from a lot of guests that they can walk into any establishment and expect a, a well-balanced classic cocktail. Um, and with that expectation set, it's okay, now how do I get what I can't make for myself at home? Because now also, we've spent the past year and a half trying to teach everyone how to make a solid drink for themselves in the comfort of their home because that's where sure. they can enjoy it. So again, how do we offer them something that makes it worthwhile for them to come out and join us at our venue? And how do we make that memorable and welcoming, uh, speedy and ultimately profitable so we can keep offering that next month, next year, five years from now. Adam, you mentioned a couple of times draft cocktails. Is that mm -hmm. something that um, people are doing in-house and how does that work? Are there are there opportunities for people to source a well-done draft cocktail that can just be dropped into the restaurant once a month or whenever they need to refresh it? Uh, I don't personally know of any resources for uh, uh, fully kegged cocktails at the moment, but I guarantee you someone is working on that right now with the explosions of yeah. RTD and ready to drink cocktails. There are larger format ones for uh, purchase at home. But if you're looking to execute in your bar, I do recommend checking out the uh, draft cocktail module uh, on Jaja Bar Academy, the world-class studios. They did a phenomenal job of walking through that process. But to give you kind of a snapshot for it, it is something that I've had a lot of experience doing in the past and something I'll be doing at Fellow. Uh, there are reusable, what they call corny kegs, uh, essentially five-gallon uh, old school, like really old school, like soda kegs that you can open up, clean out, and reuse. And uh, almost any draft line can be set up to work with these kegs, and you can batch them right in-house. Uh, and it becomes a simple matter of making sure your draft lines are clean and making sure the gases are appropriately tied up. Um, you want to make sure that if you don't, if it's not a carbonated cocktail, that it's not on a carbonated line because that carbonation will <laughs> sink in and change, change the flavor of your cocktail. Um, uh, but it is something that if I would highly recommend if you have the capacity for it to do it in-house, because again, it's something that uh, adds to your sustainability and your profitability. It's something that because these are under pressure, because they are under gas, you have an opportunity to have ingredients that will potentially keep longer with less waste. You're also batching and pouring uh, as if you were, say, a, a beer or a wine on draft. So you're eliminating uh, uh, some steps of service, which ultimately allows you to hopefully keep a smaller, tighter staff because there yeah, are a selection of cocktails. There, the yeah. drink gets on the table right away. There's a lot of yeah. pluses to that. How long does concept. something last once it's kegged? Depends on your cocktail. It really depends on a lot of the things that you're taking steps for with it. Um, if you have fresh juice in there, uh, which is, again, is something I would highly recommend uh, doing the research about what you're working on, um, you've got about two to three days, which is going to keep you longer than say a traditional lime juice that you juice fresh and that you pretty much is done by the end of service. Uh, but if you're doing a, a stirred cocktail, which is a great opportunity to build a complex drink, uh, uh, 
with a, that might have a lot of touches, but pour it simply, uh, that'll keep indefinitely. I mean, it's a great way to take advantage of something that you want to batch with, say, a vermouth or an aperitif wine-based spirit that might oxidize or go bad normally. This is going to be pressurized under that nitrogen, and it'll keep longer, keep that oxygen out, that allow that uh, stability to, to last for you. Cool. So boozy stirred cocktail in a keg. I love it. Yeah. Cool. I did a, I did a, a, a nitro infused cold brew mezcal Negroni at, at a location I was consulting on during the, uh, the pandemic and it is decadent. It's like a, a nitro coffee Negroni, uh, literally with a nitro infuser, just like you're getting your cold brew coffee at your local coffee shop. Uh, uh, it was absolutely delicious. Sounds delicious. Diageo Bar Academy equips bartenders, servers, managers, and hospitality professionals with insights, stories, and tools to be better. They're consistently raising the bar on industry standards. Managing a bar requires understanding more than just drinks. At Diageo Bar Academy, you'll find resources to optimize operations, profitability, teamwork, and more. The thing that was so awesome to us about Diageo Bar Academy is all of the e-learnings that there are available so you can quickly retrain your staff and during this busy reopening season. So make sure to check out diageobaracademy.com. It's completely free. So why wait? Visit www.diageobaracademy.com. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. Become a member and sign up for the newsletter today. It's free. I think I said that it's free, y'all. And you'll be amazed at all they have to offer. That's D-I-A-G-E-O baracademy.com. This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. You can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg. Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers into your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier, with no cholesterol, and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir-fries, and French toast. There's also frozen, pre-baked, folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres called Just Egg mind-blowing, and Bon Appetit says, so good I feel guilty eating it. Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st hrn. So we like to do a fun little lightning round with our guests meant to be, you know, quick one to two word answers. So yeah. let's start with that. So tell us your favorite cocktail. I'm sure you've never heard this question before. Yeah, right. My <laughs> favorite cocktail uh, is um, my favorite cocktail is quite honestly uh, whiskey neat. Uh, I am a huge straight spirits person. Uh, but uh, during the pandemic, uh, I found a really great touchstone with uh, my partner, uh 
we uh, went back to the uh, the martini hour. We would treat ourselves to a Tangeray 10 uh, four to one martini. I always like mine with a twist. Uh, that's four to one with the the gin to the dry vermouth. Uh, it's perfectly balanced and clean and bright for me. She always does hers with a twist, an olive and a caper because as she like to, likes to say she's greedy. So she's extra. <laughs> yeah, extra. I like it. Uh, most profitable cocktail. Most profitable cocktail. Ooh. Classic cocktail, I guess. Most profitable classic cocktail. Um, I don't know if I can speak to what the most profitable is, but I will say the one that probably is more expensive than most people think is going to be a classic well-done margarita. Because if you look at modern day specs on a margarita, if you're using a good quality Blanco tequila and a good quality triple sec or uh, orange liqueur, you're dealing with two bottles that are 20 plus dollars each with a massive amount of pour. So definitely check your specs on that. Check what your pricing is on that. Cause uh, still to this day, the margarita is the most popular cocktail in the United States is the most interesting. It is. I mean, it's not right. If it's, if it's not the number one spot right now, it's still hovering in that like number two or number three spot. Like that is, that is probably the like cocktail, like the the classic cocktail that most uh, guests would be feel comfortable ordering in any style of venue. Um, Pretty sure I made a few blue margaritas back in the day. <laughs> back in your oh, yeah. <laughs> Gallon size blue margaritas. <laughs> um, favorite part about competing, Adam? Favorite part about competing is the community that's built up around it. Uh, I was still competing here five years later because the USBG and Diageo built a phenomenal community of people that was incredibly welcoming, challenging, but also dedicated to its competitors. Uh, everyone who competes gets feedback straight from the judges about how well you did, what you can improve, where you fell kind of vaguely in the rankings to encourage you to keep learning and come back the next year. And without that community, without that education, without that support, I still wouldn't be competing. Um, but I definitely, that's why I'm still here. Uh, and also, Honestly, the adrenaline of it, there is absolutely a thrill, even though it's doing essentially the exact same thing you do every day behind the bar, stand behind six feet of wood and make cocktails for people. There is such a different energy. There is such a different nerves. There's such a different vibe when you're doing it in a space where you're like, okay, now judge me. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yep. I mean, you're judged by your guests every day, but I, I see this being a totally different level. So uh, we asked this to every guest on our show. Tell us the best business resource you've come across. Uh, the best business resource I've come across recently is the Diageo Bar Academy. Uh, in terms of the amount of opportunities for education, uh, tools to, uh, to throw into your current practices, um, as well as staff trainings. I think that uh, one of the large conversations that's going on right now is uh, uh, getting staff back. And I think that we're at a very interesting uh, um, point for our industry, uh, not to make it sound overly dramatic, but kind of like the end of prohibition where we have a lot of professionals who left the industry. Now, a lot of new people are going to be coming in as a lot of places open. And if we give them a seat at the table, if we empower them, if we educate them and let them educate us, I think we're going to see a lot of innovation and a lot of advancement in the next couple of years that we might not have seen otherwise. Uh, but the first step to doing that is giving everyone a shared language uh, and one of the great things about uh, the Bar Academy is you can sign up for it and it will track your progress and let your managers or your coworkers be able to see what modules you've completed, what education you've done, 
And that way you can all come together and have this shared language and the shared idea of like, great, I don't need to explain this part because we already know it. What do we do next? Uh, and I think that that empowerment uh, is is very big. And I'm looking forward to hopefully being able to to be a part of that, to, to give a voice, to uh, an opportunity to people uh, with a new establishment that might not have had a chance otherwise. I agree. We're, we look forward to seeing um, Fellow get open in the next couple of weeks. And uh, we really too. appreciate your, your time with us, Adam. Tell us how we find uh, you and Fellow on uh, social and, and online. Yeah, uh, I am on Instagram at uh, Bottled in Bond LA, B O T T L E D I N B O N D L A, because uh, as I said, I'm a huge whiskey nerd. Uh, that's also the name of my blog. Uh, which I talk in depth about spirits uh, and profitability and the evolution of cocktails over my career. Uh, and the fellow is also on Instagram at fellow. Um, so give us all a follow, uh, reach on out. Uh, I am like to be a resource to as many people as possible. So if you have any questions and anything I can help, think I might be able to help with, please reach out. Cool. We really appreciate that for, for the listeners. Um, and you can find us at We Are Opening Soon and at Till at NYC. Thanks again, Adam. Thanks so much. Thanks Thank you so much again. for having me. Thank you so much. Opening Soon is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You could also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.